The title of this morning's message is Both Master and Bondservant. This morning, we are again going to look at identity. We will begin again with the first verse of James chapter 1. And I have it for you this time in the Passion Translation. James chapter 1, verse 1. Greetings. My name is Jacob. Yes, that was his real name. <laughs> because of Latin interpretations, it was changed over time into what we recognize as James. His actual name was Jacob. I am a love slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all the 12 tribes of Israel who have been sown as seeds among the nations. I'm using this verse again to remind us both of James's change in identity and his target audience. His new identity is that of a love slave. That's what he says about himself. That's the way the Passion Translation interprets it. And his target audiences are Jews, both saved and unsaved. So this letter, in his mind, is being sent to Jews only. And when you read the book of James, you can tell. Jacob here was a good and faithful Jew. <laughs> and he had not yet renewed his mind entirely. Renewing our mind is a process. So he has some very strict ideas within his letter. But that's because he's writing to Jews, who, as far as he knew, were still under the law. I like the Passion Translation word for bondservant because they use this term, love slave. This translation comes from an Old Testament concept of where a temporarily hired slave becomes a permanent slave. Under the Old Covenant law, a poor Hebrew man could literally work off a debt to another Hebrew by becoming his hired slave, but only for a time period of about six full years. In the seventh year, the creditor was required by the law to set his slave free and to bless him financially in an abundant way. This was one of the ways God arranged for the poor man to get out of poverty, to have his debts removed. It was a way to provide him with a brand new start. So a poor man didn't have to stay poor. And the creditor is promised by God increased blessings because he, as God's representative, blesses the slave with a new beginning. This releasing of the slave was called the Lord's release. And we can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Under the Lord's release, I wish we still did this, all debts would be canceled in year seven. Imagine a world where every seven years you were debt-free. <laughs> that would be a good thing. And that was God's idea, that his people would never remain in debt. They would always be released. Further on in this passage, God continues to encourage the master not to avoid taking on a debtor, because there's only a few years left until the release. In other words, he might only get four years out of the slave instead of six and almost seven. So God says, um, don't do that. <laughs> if your neighbor has borrowed money from you because he was in need, what you've done, you've done unto the Lord. So don't withhold being able to get him out of debt. 
because you're stingy and want all of the money back. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying here. His debt may be worth six full years, but if there's only two years left to the release, same law applies. Don't withhold helping your neighbor. Don't withhold helping the poor because you're afraid you're not going to get your return. Because God basically says, I am your return. I am the one who blesses. God always assures the master that he will be rewarded for his generosity. And it is one of the things that God says, you cannot give to the poor and not get it back. <laughs> he won't let you. Because as we give to the poor, as we give to charities, as we give to ministries, we are the hand of God to those to whom we are ministering. And he says, what you do for me, I will certainly give back. So basically, the hired slave invested his time and effort with the master in exchange for receiving a new start in life at the end of his time served. But if a man worked for a really good master and wanted to make his position permanent, he could offer himself as a bondservant or a covenant love slave. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning with verse 16. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you <laughs> because he loves you in your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take a left hob and all and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. The left hob, which is the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet, is not usually translated but it is actually written there in this Hebrew text. It is a sign, an indicator of something special that we should see. It is also God recognizing covenant. We have a covenant keeping God. And this was a covenant of love between the master and the slave. And covenant always required a permanent mark in the flesh, indicating the permanence of the covenant. There wasn't an expiration date on covenant. So when James identifies himself as a bondservant or a covenanted love slave, this is what he's describing. The voluntary giving of himself to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in a permanent covenanted partnership based solely on the goodness of his covenant partners, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, this is a subservient role to God. <laughs> but the slave wants to serve his master because of his master's goodness. It is because of the master's goodness that he loves his master and he loves living and working under his guardianship. So the slave voluntarily submits himself to his good, good master because as it says in verse 16, he is well off. Life with the good, good master is a really good life. So he's happy to work for and serve his master. There are several types and shadows that we can see within this master-slave scenario. In the first scenario, there's a poor man who has a debt he can't pay. And it's the master who actually pays for or absorbs the debt so that the man can be free from his debt and then also be set up for a brand new, more prosperous life. Sounds like Jesus to me. <laughs> Jesus basically absorbed the sin and debt of mankind into his own flesh and then paid the price for sin, which is death, in order to set mankind free from sin's debt. And then out of his own glorious resources, he set up mankind for a brand new, more prosperous 
life. That is always God's will, life and life more abundantly. In the second scenario, we see what happens to a slave who falls in love with the master and his goodness. He wants to make it a permanent arrangement. So he volunteers to spend his life in a loving relationship with his master, who takes on the covenant responsibility of meeting all of his slaves' needs for the rest of his life. This is also what Jesus has done for us. It is through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that we have been granted everything we need for life and godliness for our entire life on earth and throughout all eternity. Now, many in the body of Christ would say yes and amen to these types and shadows, but many would also insist that the work of the slave is also needed. In order for the exchange to take place, there must be work. And under the old covenant, that was indeed the case. Under the new covenant, the work needed for this exchange is simply to believe. We can see this truth in John chapter 6, beginning with verse 28. I have it for you in the Weymouth translation. The context of this scripture is the day following the feeding of the 5,000. Some of the people who ate of the miraculous provision of bread come again looking for Jesus in order to get more bread. <laughs> they believe he could be a miraculous bakery. We just hang around with Jesus and he'll feed us forever. That sounds like a great idea to them. But they didn't want necessarily to believe on him as the Messiah, which is what the signs were supposed to do, which is to point to him as the Messiah. So John chapter 6, beginning with verse 28, it says this. What are we to do, they asked, in order to carry out the things that God requires? This, replied Jesus, is above all the thing that God requires, that you should be believers in him who he has sent. We're a little more familiar with the King James. I have that for you as well. Then they said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? They thought, well, if we can't have Jesus as a miraculous bakery, let's start our own. <laughs> How do we get to do what you do? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work. Not a work. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. So yes, it is the work of the slave that enables him to receive. But the work is the believing on Jesus. Our believing on Jesus and in what he has already done and provided for us is what we do to experience his life and power in our lives. And if you've been a believer for very long, you know that sometimes the hardest thing to do <laughs> is to believe and keep believing in the promises of God and in the spiritual realities that already exist in us. This is where we come with standing. No, I don't accept what I see. No, I don't accept what I feel. I accept what Christ says. That is my plumb line, what Christ says. Christ says, above all else, the work that God requires is to believe. One of the things I like about the slave bondservant scenarios is that God, in the midst of these transactions, wants to change the identity of both the master and the slave. To the master, he reminds him that he is the very hand of God to the slave. You are the very hand of God to somebody else. 
So God tells him in light of this fact, the fact that you are doing my work, you're performing my release, my forgiveness. <laughs> in light of that, I want you to be exceedingly generous. When a slave left his hired position because he paid off a debt, he was supposed to get a percentage of the increase while he was there. So when he left, he was well able to take care of himself, start his own flock, start his own whatever it is he wanted him to do, whether it's being a farmer. You were well able to take care of yourself. That was God's idea, that everyone who believed would have sufficient to take care of himself. The idea is God's trying to tell this master, because the master in his humanity is going to be afraid that he's coming out on the short end of the stick. <laughs> and God's assuring them, no, you can't. When you are the hand of God, you are the hand of grace to somebody else, there's no way you're coming out on the short end of the stick because God is in the midst of what you're doing. You are representing him to someone else. So he's elevating his identity. You're not just you. You're my hand of grace. Your hand can change somebody else's life. He's also wanting to equalize the uh, master's identity as well. Because it's very easy in the natural, if you are the master and somebody else is the slave, that you are much greater in the eyes of God than the slave. So what he's doing is he's saying, not only are you elevated to be my hand of grace, but you are also in submission as a bondservant. You're both master and bondservant at the same time. You're God's bondservant, but you're supposed to be master over your life. To the slave, he wants to transform his identity from poor, in debt, and helpless to a man abundantly enriched and completely free from all his debt. That is always God's will. He wants to change his identity from slave back to that of master over his newly acquired life of freedom. This, of course, is what Jesus has done for us. He has paid our sin debt in full, completely releasing us from the slavery of sin, and has brought us into a glorious and abundant life of freedom. It is for freedom that we have been set free. Imagine that. God set us free so we could be free, free from sin and free from the law. He has restored us to being masters over our own life. We get to make our own choices in this new life of freedom. Years ago, I was praying about a certain situation, and I don't even remember what it was I was asking. <laughs> but I said to the Lord, tell me what to do. What should I do in this situation? I can do this, this, or this. Which one should I pick? And God said, no. I'm not going to tell you. I was like, no, you have to tell me. <laughs> he goes, no, I want you to pick. What? You want me to pick what I want? Okay, I never heard that at church. <laughs> uh, I was like, that can't be right, Lord. Let's try this again. I'm going to try listening one more time here. He goes, no, I want you to pick. Now, I have to clarify. I was not asking, do I sin or not sin? No. <laughs> I wasn't asking, should I do good or should I do bad? No. I had good options. Which one should I pick? 
Tell me which one you want me to have. I got to do. I want you to pick. It was a teaching moment for me. <laughs> you see, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That power is Christ, the anointed one and his anointing. And if the desire of my heart is for something good, there are a myriad of ways in which God can bring that to me. What God was showing me was that, one, I was mature enough to pick what was good for me. God wasn't limited by my choice, number two. That's always interesting. God is not limited by my choice. If he gives me the option, then he knows whichever one I choose, it's all going to work out the right way <laughs> because he's always in the midst working all things for good. Now, I wasn't choosing between good and evil. We have to remember that. I'm talking about good and good and good and good and good. And sometimes, yes, they're good, 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 and then there's God. Sometimes that is the option. Do I want good or do I want the best? But this particular day, God said, no, I want to teach you something. You have freedom. You have a heart that is one with Christ. You can trust your heart. Like I say, it was a training moment for me because we don't learn to co-rule and co-reign overnight. Even though we can, we have the ability to co-rule and co-reign, we don't necessarily know how to do that. So there are these teaching moments that God brings into our life. I didn't want anything outside of his will for me. That's the other thing. I've had Christians call me and say, can I commit adultery? No. <laughs> no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> God would not choose that for you. You should not choose that for you. I wasn't talking about right and wrong, things that are obvious. This is, these were good options. Part what this little test was about. In the kingdom of God, children live by rules and commandments, just like Israel. <laughs> they needed rules and commandments because their righteousness was all outside righteousness. They didn't have and the inside righteousness that we had. So they were kept in line, so to speak, by the law. And by being under the law, God protected them. The law was good. The New Testament tells us this. the law is good for what it was designed to do, which was to show them, this is bad, <laughs> this is good. You do something bad, you're going to get that result. You do something good, you're going to get that result. Our life doesn't work that way with God. In the natural, yes. With God, no. It's all of grace. But adults in the kingdom of God, we're talking about maturity, adults live by faith and love. When my daughter Sarah was about 13, I had asked her to clean off the kitchen table. And it wasn't her night to do it. <laughs> I had chores for everybody. It wasn't her night, but I asked her to do it for me because I knew it would get done, and get done, it would get done right. And you would have thought I asked her to poke out her eye. Oh, now, dramatics for 15 minutes. This is not fair. Oops. <laughs> this is not fair. Why do I have to do this? On and on and on for like 15 minutes. Like, all right already. <laughs> she did what she was told, though. <laughs> but I had to be punished for the desire from her. <laughs> <laughs> but a funny thing happened when she grew up. You see, at 13, all she cared about was the rules. It's not my night. I shouldn't have to do it. But as a grown-up who loves me, 
I can ask her to do anything. See, that's the difference. God in that moment was saying, no, you need to grow up. Stop living by the rules and the laws and live by faith and love. It's a whole lot better and a whole lot easier. <laughs> so as an adult in the kingdom of God, when I see the reality of what Jesus, the master of the universe, has done for me, specifically for me, because of his love for me, it is easy to submit myself to his love and goodness. He chose to leave the comfort and joys of heaven and to voluntarily take on the weakness and limitedness of humanity. And then as a human being, live a sinless life for my sake. Every time temptation came to Jesus, Jesus had to consciously choose to say, no, I have a greater love that I'm living for. We are that greater love. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus knew that if in his humanity he sinned, and there's a lot of theological debate whether or not that was actually possible, but Jesus was 100% human. That's the point. He had to be able to sin in his flesh, just like us. Here we are, born again, spirit-filled, full of the power of God Christians, can we still sin? Only in our flesh, not in our spirit. Our spirit is sealed. Sin does not affect our spirit. If Jesus, in his humanity, had given in to sin, he was still a faithful Jew. He was still pure in his spirit. He was still God. Would he, if he had gone to heaven? Yes. But he would have forfeited his ability to save me. He would have forfeited because he had to be a blameless lamb, without blemish and without spot. That's who Jesus is. Over the years, I've heard free grace ministers, in an effort to explain to their congregations the freeness of God's love, they use Jesus' baptism as an example. Because at Jesus' baptism, the heavens open up and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And they've made the argument that, see, Jesus hadn't raised anybody from the dead yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Jesus hadn't healed anybody. And God still loved him. The point they were trying to make is, see, he hadn't done anything yet, and God still loved him. And I thought, he lived a perfectly sinless life. What do you mean he didn't do anything? <laughs> perfectly sinless for one reason. Us. Us. He so loved us, he set aside his glory. He so loved us, he set aside the desires of the flesh. Jesus was perfectly human means he liked girls. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, not for me. I have a purpose and a mission. I have a greater love to live for and to die for. Jesus knew that he was our only hope of rescuing humanity from the grip of sin and death. Jesus constantly lived a life of agape love. 
self-sacrificing love for me and for you and for the whole world and yes, especially for his father. Jesus was master of the universe, the one and only unique son of God, but he was also a bondservant, a slave to agape love and for agape love. Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, taking my sin debt as his own by being pierced, just like the bondservant, pierced and nailed to a wooden cross, paying the ultimate price for my release, for my freedom, for my new identity. I have Isaiah 53 in the message translation. I am going to read the whole thing just because it's so good. <laughs> Who believes what we have heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling. Didn't you see Jesus as a scrawny teenager? <laughs> a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered and who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But in fact, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. I love that. He said, we can find what's wrong with us in a heartbeat. <laughs> but in Christ, there is nothing wrong with us. We have been born again, recreated in the very likeness and image of God. We are what Jesus is. We are fused together with Jesus. We can't be less than what Jesus is. Now, can we act less than what Jesus is? Yep, we can. Why? Because we have freedom. <laughs> We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole through his bruises. We get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing and gone our own way. And God has piled all of our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. The creator of the universe, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, and he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. He had to. He had to take it in silence. He couldn't say something other than what God wanted. <laughs> so he took it in silence. He knew the mission. He knew the greater love. Justice was miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? No, not even the disciples knew what was actually going on. He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man. 
even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. And we have to understand this isn't the father saying, you must suffer, son, so that you can save the rest of the world. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that went to that cross. Jesus was never abandoned. Jesus tells us, I am not alone. He knew what he was going through, and he was going to go through it with the Father and with the Son, because this was the plan from the beginning, to put mankind back where he belonged as sons and rulers over the earth. The plan was that he would give himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it. Man, oh man. On that cross, he could see you. On that cross, he could see the people who would be redeemed. He could see them and he says, this is worth it. You are worth it. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. I love that part. <laughs> Sometimes we go through things, and we go as hard. And we know to everybody else it looks completely unnecessary. <laughs> but when it's over, we've gotten through to the other side, we can say, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went through that. I see how this has benefited me. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones, as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly. Sounds like that scripture, doesn't it? <laughs> the bond servant, the servant gets extremely blessed because of what he's done. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face, and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest, he took on his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. I love the way he puts that. Everyone I've ever known <laughs> looks at themselves as a black sheep somewhere. I don't fit. I don't fit with that group. I don't fit with that church. I don't fit with that family. I don't fit. And God says, I came to make you fit wherever I put you. <laughs> when my heart sees what great love the Father and our Lord Jesus has for me, my response is love, gratitude, and worship. I gladly submit myself as his bondservant of love and to his goodness and graciousness in and through my life all the days of my life. I am well off with him. I want to do his bidding. I want to be his representative on this earth. I want to be his covenanted agape love slave. And so by believing in Jesus, I become both master over my new life on earth and his bond servant of love all at the same time. Jesus was master of the universe and a bond servant to his father all at the same time. We are like him. Being a bondservant is not what we do for Jesus. It's who he's made us to be naturally. We naturally submit 
to the Holy Spirit, even if our brain doesn't. <laughs> Sometimes we have to take control over our brain and say, no, you're not going to think those thoughts. I have a greater love. Jesus wasn't incarnated so that we could be forgiven sinners. That's what the Israelites were, forgiven sinners who never got free from the power and presence of sin. <laughs> so Jesus became a man specifically to rescue mankind from their slavery to sin and death. And the only way to make slaves into masters is to do for them what they cannot do themselves. The man who had a debt had no way out. It was the mercy and grace of a master that took his debt onto himself and then set him up for a brand new life. The Israelites understood why they brought lambs to be sacrificed. The lamb represented themselves. Isn't that funny? They were taught that a blameless lamb was their representative before God. They weren't taught to bring a dirty, rotten, half-dead sheep as a representative of themselves. They were to bring the spotless lamb, the best lamb, because it represented them before God. That's how God sees us. We are the best lamb. <laughs> so they were taught that a blameless lamb was their representative before God and that their sins could be transferred legally imputed to the lamb, and that that lamb died in their place to set them free from the power of death, which was the curse. So they understood that the only way to get rid of sin's guilt was through the doorway of death. But they couldn't personally and physically die and then still be alive. So they needed representative lambs. But through their own personal blameless representative lamb, they recognized that that was exactly what they were doing. They were able to die representatively and yet still live through the blood of a lamb. So their sins were dealt with by being covered over by blood, but their nature wasn't changed. <laughs> they were still sinners by nature. They were still slaves to the indwelling power of sin. All of this, of course, are types and shadows of what would one day be fulfilled through Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Lamb of God, our personal representative before the Father. Jesus, as the one and only Lamb of God, didn't just deal with the guilt of wrong actions. Jesus dealt with humanity's fallen nature. When Adam fell from the high place of grace, he was God's personal representative on the earth. And he, as the first supernatural son of God, had mastery over everything on earth, except other people. That would be so nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> he had mastery over everything on earth, except other people. And that was God's original plan, to have a planet full of sons of God, both male and female, who would rule and reign in love and in righteousness, as God's voluntary agape love slaves, both sons and bondservants all at the same time. Adam, as a ruling and reigning son, was supposed to be totally submitted to his heavenly father, who had already graced him with everything he would ever need for life and godliness. 
That sounds familiar. <laughs> and this is still God's plan, to have a planet full of sons of God submitted both to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and to have them rule and reign over their own lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and over all the earth as well. But in order to fulfill this plan, God had to get mankind recreated in the image and likeness of God in his spirit. In Adam, mankind was disconnected from the life of God and fell into darkness, the darkness of sin and death. So mankind then needed a way to be reconnected to the source of all light, love, and life. So our good, good father sent us a second Adam, the last Adam, who was already fully connected to God and, in fact, was himself also God and who also was fully human, just like us but without sin. And God's second Adam chose agape love instead of selfishness. Self-sacrificing love that lays down its life for another. Jesus laid down his physical life so that he could share his life-giving spirit with us, thereby making us sons of God as well. When I was writing this, I got to the self-sacrificing part and God said, you know, that isn't what you do. He says, what you do is different. He said, Jesus sacrificed himself. He says, that's not what you do. He says, you sacrifice flesh. In our life, when we love, we sacrifice flesh. <laughs> love lays down its life, but flesh says, no, I shouldn't have to clean off the kitchen table. <laughs> we actually only sacrifice the desires of our flesh. Because in our nature, we want to submit, we want to love, we want to give. We don't sacrifice self anymore. We have a brand new self. What we sacrifice is the desires of the flesh. We don't let them tell us what we can and cannot do or will and will not do. We see this truth, of course, in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. I'm almost done. <laughs> When Adam sinned, the entire world was affected. Sin entered the human experience, and death was the result. So death followed this sin, casting its shadow over all humanity, because all have sinned. Sin was in the world before Moses gave the law, but it was not charged against them where no law existed. Yet death reigned as king from Adam to Moses, even though they hadn't broken a commandment the way Adam had. The first man, Adam, was a picture of the Messiah who was to come. Now, there is no comparison between Adam's transgression and the gracious gift that we experience. For the magnitude of the gift far outweighs the crime. It's true that many died because of one man's transgression, but how much greater will God's grace and his gracious gift of acceptance overflow to many because of one man, Jesus, the Messiah? and what he did for us. And this free-flowing gift imparts to us much more than what was given to us through the one who sinned. For because of one transgression, we are all facing a death sentence with a verdict of guilty. But this gracious gift leaves us free from our many failures and brings us into perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God, acquitted with the words, not guilty. That doesn't seem right to our heads, does it? That guilty people should be declared righteous? 
But God doesn't leave us guilty. <laughs> That's the thing. He doesn't leave us guilty. Technically, the Israelites stayed guilty. God only covered their sin. But because of their faith, their offerings were accepted. They had exterior righteousness. God doesn't leave us guilty forever. I thought I was a guilty sinner and there was something really wrong with who I was. And if God, if you would just fix me, Jesus, fix me. I thought I needed to be fixed all the time. He says, no, you need to change your mind. You have a perfect new self who is in its nature love, who he looks just like Jesus, not guilty anymore, even when I am. <laughs> death once held us in this grip, and by the blunder of one man, death reigned as king over humanity. But now, how much more are we held in the grip of grace and continue reigning as kings in life, enjoying our regal freedom through the gift of perfect righteousness and the one and only Jesus, the Messiah? In other words, just as condemnation came upon all people through one transgression, so through one righteous act of Jesus' sacrifice, the perfect righteousness that makes us right with God no matter what we do and leads us to a victorious life is now available to all. One man's disobedience opened the door for all humanity to become sinners. So also, one man's obedience opened the door for many to be made perfectly right with God and acceptable to him. So then, the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. And yet, wherever sin increased, praise God, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph all the more. And just as sin reigned through death, so also this sin-conquering grace. How do we stop sinning? By grace, by being empowered by God, himself, his life, his truth. This sin-conquering divine enablement called grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. Jesus came to change our identity not just to get us forgiven of sins. We were once slaves to sin. We sinned because we were sinners. But God wanted to restore us and all of mankind back to his original plan where we are his personal representatives on this earth and we would rule and reign as kings over our own lives and in this world. Kings declare. Kings proclaim. Kings give orders. We have the spiritual authority to speak to what's going on. We have the power of Christ himself. He is in here. <laughs> he is in here. And he says, I will watch over my word to perform it. Speak my word over those situations. You are kings. And you are supposed to rule and reign over yourself. That's the first place we need to take dominion. <laughs> over our flesh. <laughs> and then we can take dominion in this world. We are not powerless. We are not hopeless. I love the song we sang about being rescued because I see God singing that over America. I will do whatever it takes to rescue you. Believe it. Declare it. Bring it into manifestation. Don't let up. Don't get weary in well-doing. Because if you faint not, you will reap. 
That's what God wants for us. That's what we're here on earth to do, to be Christ. I know Trevor always says we're little Jesuses. And one day Jesus said, that's not exactly true. You're big Jesuses. You're full-grown Jesuses. You can do whatever Jesus did. You have the same power that raised him from the dead. There is nothing we cannot overcome. And collectively, oh, Satan doesn't have a prayer. That's right. The church shall overcome. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word and the truth of our new identities. Help us, Father God, to see ourselves as full-grown Jesuses. No, we're not going to give our life for somebody's salvation, but we're going to give them your life through us. We're going to give them who you are. We're going to give them your kind of love. We're going to give them your kind of patience. We're going to give them your kind of excessive generosity. We are going to walk in and through the Holy Spirit in the very steps of Jesus. You have made us to be kings and priests and rulers and masters all through a bond-servant relationship with you. We thank you, Father God, for our new identity. Help us to renew our mind to what we really are and what you really want us to do. We thank you, Father God, that you give us freedom. We get to pick. You put your desires in us so that we can have choices. And you are big and you are beyond all that we can even ask or think or imagine. You can do far above what we understand. All because of the Christ that lives within us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are your greater love. You had a separate will. You had a human desire. And you said, no, that's not what I really want. What I really want is my greater love. What I really want is to do what I'm called to do. What I really want is to glorify and show the world who God really is. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father God. And we thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.